Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. We certainly appreciate it. Oh boy, and what a busy day it is. Polls have opened up on Tuesday across the country as the midterm elections get underway. No doubt that will be a topic of conversation throughout the entire show, but we are going to spend the first segment digging into it with Tanner Beamer, the Senior Director of Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Then we're going to turn the focus to the protein market, specifically poultry, with Brian Ernest, the lead protein economist from CoBank. And in segment three, we've got the USMEF joining us on the program. We're going to talk specifically specifically about what has developed for meat demand over in Asia. We'll be talking to two of their representatives, both in-country here for their annual meeting. And uh, we're going to end the program today with our friend Dwayne Bussey taking a look at the markets as the election shock kind of wears through what's happening here in the commodity markets. Let's talk about that electoral shock. Tanner Bamer joins us now, Senior Director, Government Affairs at NCBA. And Tanner, I want to start as these votes are being tallied today and tonight what do you think we'll know here at the end of the day on Tuesday? Well, Mike, thanks for having me on. I think as we look to the results coming in this evening, I think we can pretty comfortably say that we will know which party will control the House of Representatives. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and say we will probably know that information before the polls even close on the West Coast. Uh, all the projections are predicting a pretty significant Republican pickup. Uh, some of the projections I've seen are as high as 40 seats. I don't know if we'll see something uh, quite that drastic, but I do think you will see a pretty substantial pickup on the Republican side of the ledger. Um, unfortunately, however, I do not think that we will know who's going to control the Senate uh, this evening. I think that it all is going to come down to the states of Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. And uh, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that those uh, elections are very tight and those results take a while to be processed before we are officially able to make a call in any of those races. Uh, but regardless, I think we will get a good sense of the House this evening, and I think that will uh, paint a pretty good picture of what the 118th Congress is going to look like. Tanner, if we get a change at, at the House, if the Republicans do take control, what would that mean for the House Ag Committee? What sort of leadership changes would you expect to see there? You know, there is uh, always a possibility that you could see uh, a change up in leadership. We are anticipating that in the event of a Republican flip, Congressman G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania, who's currently the ranking member, will become the chairman. Uh, there's also uh, nothing at this point that would lead us to believe that uh, the incumbent chairman, David Scott from Georgia, uh, would not slip over and be the ranking member. Um, but on the Democratic side, there are a lot of retirements across a lot of committees. And obviously, Democrats are incredibly vulnerable in this election cycle. So depending on how the results shake up, there may be some movement around on other committees. And you could see a change up uh, on the ranking member side in the event that we have a Republican Congress. Uh, but it is way too early to make a prediction there. Uh, I do think comfortably, though, we can say that GT will be the next chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. Okay, Tanner, you touched on the Senate races that are up for battle today. Pennsylvania and Georgia garnering a lot of press here. Big questions happening in those two states. But you mentioned several other states. Tanner, what other states are you keeping an eye on? You know, Mike, it's amazing. And I, I, I've been covering elections for a while. I actually worked in campaigns before I came to NCBA. And I it never ceases to amaze me how much the the closing days, the closing weeks of an election cycle can really start to impact uh, the ultimate results. If you would have asked me about three weeks ago, I would have said the only two toss-up races in the Senate were Georgia and Pennsylvania. But in the last three weeks, we've seen Republicans polling surge in Arizona with Blake McMasters going up against the incumbent Senator Mark Kelly, in Nevada with challenger Adam Laxalt going up against incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto. Even in Ohio, J.D. Vance is gaining ground uh, and so as we start to look at some of these other races that weren't necessarily uh, considered to be toss ups a very short time ago, I think that you could see uh, a, a, a Republican pickup in the Senate. I don't think that that is unlikely. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the, the polls that we look at within our office 
showed that uh, three weeks ago, there was about a 42% chance of Republicans securing control of the Senate. Uh, this morning, that same polling service is showing us about a 59% chance that Republicans will control the Senate during the 118th Congress, uh, which leads me to believe that they could pick up as many as three or four seats. Um, but again, I think that those key states, we're not going to know that for sure until we get a little bit later into this week. That's a great point. And same question to you, Republicans. Let's say they take the Senate by the time we get all the votes counted. Changes in leadership on the Senate side that you're thinking about already? You know, there will for sure be uh, a new top Democrat on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, the president pro tempore, the longest serving Democrat in the Senate, Pat Leahy, is retiring at the end of this Congress. Uh, that will be a pretty significant switch up. Um, and then obviously within the Agriculture Committee, if the Senate does flip, we can expect to see uh, Senator John Bozeman from Arkansas take the reins as the chairman. He's currently the top Republican on the committee. And most likely you will see Debbie Stabenow uh, as the ranking member of the Ag Committee once again. All right. Tanner, you mentioned just briefly there the, the Pennsylvania and Georgia Senate races. I'm not too cued into the polls. Do you have a handle right now on how those two are sitting? You know, in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz is is really surging. Um, I think last I checked, he was up about three points, which is, is nothing to balk at. But also remember, that is within the margin of error. Uh, if you look down at Georgia, however, uh, you have... Uh, Herschel Walker going up against incumbent Senator uh, Dr. Raphael Warnock. I think Herschel's only up about a point and a half, which is definitely still in toss-up territory. The one thing we do have to remember, though, is that in Georgia, the Senate race is not top of the ballot. The top of the ballot is a rematch between incumbent Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams. And that race will for sure drive voter turnout. And it's unclear right now as to whether or not that will drive turnout in favor of Democrats or Republicans. But I do know that that is uh, going to be perhaps the tightest race that we are looking at in the Senate, um, except maybe Nevada. I would say Nevada and, and Georgia, both of those results will be determined by just a few thousand votes. Tanner, I'm curious about turnout. You mentioned that top of the ticket race in Georgia, driving voters potentially from both sides. Given that this is a midterm, we typically don't see so much enthusiasm for these midterm elections. How do you think turnout overall is going to be this year? You know, I, I don't know that we'll necessarily see turnout in the same way we did during the 2018 so-called blue wave that gave us uh, Democratic control of both houses of Congress originally. But I do think you will see a pretty high degree of voter turnout. If you look at the top three issues that uh, pollsters are asking voters what their top three issues going into the midterms are, the results are the economy, inflation, crime, and then obviously reproductive rights with the Supreme Court decision on Dobbs. But if you combine inflation and the economy, they're two similar issues, that is the number one issue by about five percentage points, which is a meteoric gap uh, between the second highest issue. And, you know, inflation has been hitting Americans very hard for about the past year. Uh, the economy, you know, we're staring into the eyes of a recession. Interest rates are going up. Uh, costs are going up, and I think that Americans are really looking for change. I don't know that they necessarily believe writ large that the Republican Party is the answer to some of these challenges, because if you look at the generic ballot, uh, Republicans are only enjoying about a less than 1% advantage on the generic ballot. But I do they think are. than anything. Tanner, Tanner will be back. Thank you, sir. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that can only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. 
Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, thinking back to the weather this past year, did it set up any pest concerns? Absolutely. We had northern corn rootworm pressure, which was fairly high this season. Uh, beetles were present in cornfields and bean fields throughout South Dakota, even farther west than what we've seen in the previous years. And we saw a clipping of silks, which led to susceptibility to diseases entering the ears, such as corn smut. And when performing root digs, it showed larva feeding. So overall, this pest is robbing yields. So I recommend that for 2023, you protect your yields with SmartStax or SmartStax Pro hybrids and consider an insecticide planting. That's Don Gustafson with an update on channel products this year. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. You know, on yesterday's program, we caught up with Breath Beth Breeding from the National Turkey Federation about how turkey producers are preparing for Thanksgiving this year. She mentioned that great guide you can find at eatturkey.org. And today we're going to dive a little deeper into both the turkey markets and the poultry sector more broadly with our friend Brian Ernest, the lead protein economist over at CoBank. And Brian, first question to you, are we going to run out of turkey this Thanksgiving? <laughs> Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. I, you know, I think uh, it's a good question, right? Um, I guess the the over broadly uh, response is probably not. Uh, we're going to have plenty of turkeys this year for Thanksgiving. Um, but in terms of what folks see from uh, you know a regional perspective, there may be some barren shelves. I was here in the local market this week looking at what's going on, and I uh, have seen some empty uh, uh, bunkers already. Uh, as consumers are, are seeing some good deals in some areas, but uh, others where prices are, are stronger, um, you know, those those markets are still pretty full. So uh, seek out those deals, I guess. But um, the main thing, probably going to see uh, smaller birds overall this year, and, um, you know, that has quite a bit to do with uh, this highly pathogenic avian influenza that uh, growers have faced this year. Brian, let's talk about that HPAI impact. We've discussed it on the laying industry, we've discussed it on the chicken industry, but turkeys in particular, what did they deal with this year? Well, that, you know, it, it kind of popped up earlier this year, and I think I've been on the show before talking about what we've seen. Uh, we figured it was going to mount and, and turn into an issue for Thanksgiving supplies this year. Uh, you know, and, and a bit skeptical about, you know, the overall impact, but turkey producers have been hit pretty hard this year, uh, seeing more than eight or more than seven million birds uh, depopulated this year as a result of, uh, of uh, detection in some of the top producing states. Um, you know, and, and that, uh, that has an, had an impact on, on overall building of supplies ahead of Thanksgiving. Um, another major contributor thinking about supplies is uh, the timing for which uh, high path AI has has um, impacted supplies. Uh, back in 2015, the last time we saw a major outbreak, 
Um, you know, things really slowed down during the summer time frame, and we didn't see detections in the fall period. Um, but this time around, we are seeing it pop up again uh, in the fall period this year, which has some implications for fresh production. Um, and you know, as as we're thinking about what's available, um, some consumers have a, a strong preference towards getting a you know a fresh bird versus one that um, that's that's frozen prior to preparation. Um, and those supplies are likely limited, uh, you know, partially due to uh, to the impact from from high path AI. Brian, I'm listening to you say the industry lost seven plus million birds. We're looking at smaller bird sizes on the shelves. I've got to imagine all of those factors are going to mean higher prices this year for consumers. Yeah, I've taken a look at um, you know what what uh, wholesale markets were doing even early this year, and during the first quarter, we saw record high price environment uh, for for birds at the, the wholesale level, somewhere around a dollar forty a pound. Um, and that compares with somewhere around a dollar per pound or a little bit below that uh, for that time is, is what the, the retailers have typically been working with. And when they make their preparations for how, what they want to present on the shelf for consumers, that's kind of typically the starting point, right? They, they make their decisions earlier in the year um, and then figure out a marketing plan as they get closer to Thanksgiving. Um, and this year really started at a, a price point much higher than what they, they've uh, dealt with before. Uh, the theme of inflation uh, resonates here as well, as those prices that we saw early in the year really didn't have the impact of HPAI built in, right? That was largely the, the chief input increases that, um, that turkey producers were having to pass along uh, through the marketplace. And... Brian, I'm curious, you mentioned the industry builds up towards Thanksgiving. It is the turkey industry's Super Bowl. With the troubles this year and the growth and the inflation theme that's still in the industry, what do you expect to see for turkey production post-Thanksgiving? Well, typically December's a, a slow period and kind of a let's, let's get a game plan for next year. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit yet to be seen. I think HPAI still is a factor next year. I mentioned that um, we're seeing um, you know, a, a reoccurring theme of HPAI uh, impacting flocks here this fall, um, and it's likely suited that we'll see it again in the spring. Um, so that may play a role next year. Um, the higher price environment likely provides an incentive for producers, so maybe they can overcome some of the battles that they're having with um, you know, the, the disease continuing in, in a wildfowl and, and potentially impacting their, their flocks. Um, so, so that plays a role. Um, the other thing is we saw a pretty big shift in terms of, you know, the, the two different uh, the categories that turkey uh, fills. So thinking about the large birds, you know, those larger toms, they go into production for further processing, deli meat, uh, you know, institutional use, uh, the, the breast meat that they use out of the toms. Um, there, there wasn't as much of a strong demand on that side of the picture uh, last year and the year before as we had some uh, impact from COVID. Um, but that has come back this year, and, and we're actually seeing a really much stronger use of deli, despite the high price environment we're seeing there. So overall, there's a, a pretty strong incentive for uh, production growth next year. Uh, but the question mark just still kind of remains around, um, you know, what, what impact HPAI is going to have on, on uh, uh, moving forward. Absolutely. Turkey producers keeping an eye on HPAI, but I think more broadly, the poultry sector as a whole will be keeping an eye on that. Brian, I know you've recently done some big check-ins here on the poultry sector for the CoBank quarterly. And I'm wondering, with that theme of inflation hitting consumers' pocketbooks, are we seeing more folks consume poultry? Some of what I've seen picked up this this summer, um, it you know it does show that uh, folks are putting a little bit more chicken in their basket uh, when they're going to the grocery store. Um, you know they're they're thinking a little bit more about their budget, and uh, you know that that showed up in some really strong demand for chicken this summer. Uh, the wholesale market definitely resonated that with um, breast meat prices hitting record high levels. Um, and you know, so that that has continued to carry, and um, I, I think that can that probably shows up a little bit more in in the, the upcoming year. Um, we're expecting that we're going to see beef supplies shrink or production shrink in the, the upcoming year. 
Um, pork probably be relatively flat, so there is room for uh, for chicken to to grow some next year. Um, probably going to be some additional price support, and consumers are, are going to see that inflation theme continue uh, into 23, at least a higher price environment than what they've been u- used to prior to 2020. So, um, you know, that overall lends itself very well to um, uh, chicken consumption growing uh, in the upcoming year. Um, and I, I think the, the overall theme here is that protein has had a very strong tailwind uh, as consumers have gravitated towards that space. Brian, if there's more consumption demand ahead for chicken, is there more production growth ahead for poultry? I know they've been struggling to get those uh, those chick sets up this year. It has been very limited. Um, what I'm noticing here over the last six weeks or so, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that, is hatchery production has picked up a little bit, um, actually rather remarkably in the August-September time frame. And that has provided a boost to production here most recently. Um, I'm looking here at, at the ones, there, the, the hatchery reports over the last couple of weeks. And it's come down, back down a little bit. But I, I think that overall says, well, maybe we're over this hump of, um, you know, having uh, limited output from the hatcheries. That was one of the chief um, uh, kind of, you know, limiting factors for chicken production to grow. Uh, really has been this, this difficulty to overcome some of the uh, inability to grow that front-end supply. So if they can overcome that in the upcoming year, we've probably got some growth there. Um, in terms of uh, overall expansion from a production level, haven't really seen a whole lot uh, there. Um, but some of that ties back to this inflation bubble or you know inflation conversation. Um, you know, the, the uh, rising cost of construction uh, and materials has, has really kind of, you know, kind of put a pause in, in expanding uh, production capacity for the industry. Absolutely. Certainly impacted every protein producer who's been looking to expand. Brian, real quick, before we let you go, export markets for chicken, are they going to be strong this next year? That's a bit difficult as well. Um, you know, thinking about HGAI, uh, we've, we've now seen it pop up in Arkansas uh, here the last month. And as a result, some of the top export destinations um, have limited U.S. exports from that state specifically. That was one of the, the things that we saw this year that, um, you know, hasn't been as much of an impact, but potentially in the, of the year to come. All right, things to watch as this whole event moves forward. Folks, we've been talking with Brian Ernest, the lead protein economist over at CoBank. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, when AOA returns, we'll be checking in with our friends from the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We'll dive deeper into that export question on AOA coming up. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to um, fly by that this year. Um, We know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that. So we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, But the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the market trade so far on this Tuesday, we have fairly mixed action in grains and oil seeds with livestock, both cattle and hogs trading a bit to the downside. Wheat markets, especially Kansas City, hard red winter wheat and Minneapolis spring wheat finding a little bit of moderate support. Chicago wheat mixed around unchanged, while quartered soybeans are both anywhere from about uh, two to five cents lower in the early trade action. Crude oil down a little bit while the stock market is up just a little bit. We have elections uh, on hand here today. 
midterm elections. They're always a sensitive subject. We'll have to see if those impact the market trade at all moving forward here throughout the day today and into tomorrow especially. If any impact, probably be on the macro side, which could weigh on the grain trade. We have the WASDI report coming up tomorrow as well. That will be something to watch closely. Traders going to be keeping an eye on both corded soybean yield as well as keeping an eye on export demand numbers. We did get some sales on the export front Tuesday morning of corn and soybeans to Mexico, China, and unknown. 338,600 metric tons of corn to Mexico. 144,000 metric tons of soybeans to Mexico as well, 138,700 metric tons of soybeans to China, and 132,000 metric tons of soybeans to unknown, all of those sales for this current marketing year. On the livestock side, we got, saw good support there yesterday, especially in lean hogs, but we're giving back some of that here today. As uh, we saw in technical trading, it appeared on Monday. Maybe this is a bit of a correction here in the market. We'll have to see as the day progresses. But the December contract and hogs giving back a little over a dollar so far on Tuesday. And that is a check of the market trade. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back, and thanks for joining us here on AOA. One of the stories I certainly like to keep a track of on this program is what's happening with all of the U.S. protein that gets exported. And for those answers, I usually turn to our friends at the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and we're going to do that today. In this next segment, we're going to be speaking with two experts from USMEF. We've got Joel Haggard. He's the Senior Vice President for the Asia Region. He joins us now. Joel, thanks for joining the program. Happy to be here. We also have Taz Hijikata. She is the director of the Japanese office for USMEF. And Taz, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Let's talk about how things are looking over in Asia. Joel, I know you live in Hong Kong. We've been watching some conversations about China. Will they, won't they repeal their COVID zero policy? Give us an update from the ground in China. How are things going? Sure. Well, I wish I uh, could could provide more positive news on that. So uh, about three weeks ago, the Chinese Communist Party held their once in five year uh, big meeting. That's when they kind of lay out their agenda for the next five years. I think there was there was some hope that they would uh, uh, provide signals that they would relax their COVID zero policies. Um, that didn't really come. And then last Saturday, there was a, uh, a press conference in China uh, by those that uh, administer the COVID zero program. They also said that un they're going to unswervingly um, adhere to their zero COVID policies. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people are talking about the zero COVID policies, but I mean, if you look at uh, the imports um, of meat, um, they, you know, they've done fine. Um, I think we all remember pre COVID and when COVID was just starting hitting, we we're all very concerned around the world about how food service and how, how that sector would swoon under pandemic situations would be negative for our uh, protein consumption. But the at-home consumption really um, picked up a lot 
of the slack that food service gave up. And uh, that's that's certainly happened in China. And it's happened in so many different places as COVID protocols have been rolled back. I know in this last month's report, Taz, we saw some more news from Japan, saw that U.S. pork exports are up month on month. I'm curious, in Japan, how are consumers behaving now that COVID is moving into the rear view? Um, in Japan, it, we are moving very well. So recently, about 10 years ago, we switched um, meat consumption over the seafood and Japanese consumers consume meat more than before. So, and then especially pork, we eat pork the most in Japan, so we love pork. So that's why U.S. pork export is increasing every year. It is increasing every year, and that growth continues. And Taz, we've also seen some pretty strong reactions from Japanese consumers for U.S. beef. Do you have uh, have any insights on how the Japanese public is doing adapting to U.S. beef? Yes. On the behavior of the Japanese consumption toward the beef is changing. So before, Japanese consumer preferred the marbled meat, so a lot of like uh, greasing, like a lot of fat contents. But recently, Japanese consumers care about health and they prefer the marbled meat, but the less, less fat. So that's a U.S. beef is perfect fit for the, their favorite foods, favorite meats. So that's why U.S. beef is perfect fit for the Japanese consumers these days. That is very cool. So the Japanese consumer is pushing more towards a lean cut of beef, it sounds like. Taz, how does that impact demand, do you think, going forward? Yes, um, it's increasing more and more. And then also, as I said, the Japanese people eat meat more than seafood. And then especially like a Japan, the female have a job, so they don't have time to prepare for the dinner. So they prefer to cook beef and pork more than seafood because that um, less preparing time cook time for cooking and then also the cost for the seafood is quite expensive compared to the meat so they prefer the dinner for and using beef and pork more that certainly makes sense. It's an interesting shift for people that live on an island. Joel, I'm curious, as you look out over the rest of what's happening in Asia, are there any hotspots that have matured here in recent months? Yeah, I mean, the interesting story, I think, this year, uh, Mike, is the what, what I call the beef import bill. Um, so what these import markets in Asia are paying for beef um, compared to uh, a year ago. So it was already strong a year ago, but um, I, I think everyone's aware that these Asian currencies have devalued. They're still they're still purchasing beef, and they're they're purchasing more of it in value terms. I mean, China's purchases of total beef imports, right? Uh, the U.S. is up, of course, very high, but total purchases of beef value terms up almost fifty percent year on year. Taiwan up fifty percent, Korea up thirty two percent, Japan up ten percent. Um, so um, the the beef import bill in Asia has grown, and it's both, uh, in most cases, it's both volume and value. So um, we just see very strong demand across the region. Joel, with those beef import bills climbing as they have been, and with the global currency markets being as unsettled as they are, are any other countries picking up some more beef business as U.S. product gets more expensive? Well, I think one, you know, one thing we've been talking about at this meeting is the kind of the unique attributes. If you're in the United States, everything's grain-fed. So we don't we don't even talk about grain-fed beef in the United States. But in, in Asia, in particular, we talk about differentiating our product against grass-fed product, mainly from South America in most of these markets, but also Australia and New Zealand in North Asia. But we have that unique attribute, and I see uh, a global shortage of grain-fed beef um, simply because you have Australia, you have Canada and the United States producing it. And that's where the demand is really growing fast. And do you think that demand can stick around looking at how the economies are performing in this unsettled area? Are you still optimistic to see growth in Asia? Well, we look at everything uh, in the long term. So when I started working in Taiwan, grain fed beef was kind of a novelty. Uh, it was a, it, it was a luxury. 
So we're talking, you know, we're talking a generation ago, Mike, but, uh, you know, now in Taiwan, for example, uh, half the market is grain fed. Japan, of course, is, uh, is mostly grain fed. China is only 11 to 12% grain fed. So look at the opportunity there to grow that. And, uh, you know, that's what we see as opportunity. China's just, it, it's the largest beef import market in the world by far, but the grain fed segment is, is still small. And, uh, you know, there's been this there's been this slow realization by consumers of the you know the the taste and value attributes of grain fed beef. So, I, I don't know. We still see incredible opportunity. That is very cool, Joel. You mentioned sometimes it can take a generation to get this demand growing, to get consumers in new places acclimated to the kind of products that American farmers are producing. Taz, I know that this year we're celebrating 45 years of the U.S. MEF office there in Japan. As you look out long term, are you optimistic for future growth in that country? Yes, definitely. Because um, one of the reasons is that the Japanese government recommend consumers to eat more meat. We should take more protein for keeping our health. So a Japanese government really pushed to have more meat these days. So we believe that the meat consumption is growing in every year. So we see the only positive side of the U.S. meat export to Japan. It's nice to hear a government encouraging the consumption of protein. That's always music to my ears. Joel, I'm wondering there, looking at some of the changes we're seeing in Australia and New Zealand with regard to their carbon management, do you think there might be some more opportunity for U.S. beef again in Asia as those herds potentially shrink? Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, we're watching what's happening in New Zealand with their new uh, programs regarding emissions. Um, Again, I, I think I'm kind of looking at it from the demand side, Mike, the, just that demand side being, you know, uh, still a lot of opportunity there to supply that, you know, that grain fed hole there. Um, we, we've seen great uh, uh, take up of USB, for example, in the Philippines. So again, I think I, I'm kind of looking more on the demand side right now because we just see just um, uh, not enough supply actually out of the few grain fed producers that, I mean, the United States is unique because we can, you know, we're able to fill an order for a, a restaurant chain in China that just wants to buy, let's say, two or three cuts. I mean, the, the United States is unique in being able to supply those large volumes of single cuts. This has certainly been the case in Japan. And, um, you know, with with the growth in chain restaurants, for example, alone in, in all these Asian markets, um, the U.S. is just uniquely positioned to fill that that type of large institutional demand. Joel, with the supply chain disruptions that we've seen over the past two years, are we still meeting that demand as needed from uh, from a shipping perspective? Well, I know we had some we had some headwinds last uh, last year and and including into this year with shipments of chilled. Um, you know, I think um, I think that some of the supply chain issues are are getting better. Um, and, you know, we have to look on the positive side that they will they will self-correct. The pandemic was extremely disruptive to those supply chains. But now I, I think that the trend is toward normalization. So and chilled is just such an opportunity from the United States, given our um, you know, given our proximity uh, to Asia, let, let's say vis-a-vis -vis Europe on port, for example. Um, we just have that opportunity to, to do the chilled in there. So again, we have that comparative advantage. We certainly do, folks. We've been talking to Joel Haggard, Senior Vice President for Asia at the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and Taz Hijikawa, the Director of Consumer Affairs in Japan. Thanks for joining us, you two. And folks, stick around. Dwayne Bussey on the markets when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. 
Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Ben Doan. He's the barge freight manager with CHS. And Ben, water levels on the Mississippi River are impacting barge traffic. What can you tell us about that situation? That's right, Mike. As we know, the Mississippi River corridor is, is the link in the chain between producers and a global export market as it relates to the center Gulf and, and that New Orleans and surrounding territory. And right now, just because of drought conditions across the nation, we're at record low water levels, particularly in that Memphis South Corridor where every barge travels through both northbound and southbound. So without that corridor, we really don't have a reliable transportation infrastructure as it relates to the river system in the U.S. So right now there's overloaded barges, there's boats that are kind of trapped in queues, and there, there's intermittent river closures going on right now. So not a good situation overall. Ben, what are these low water levels doing for transit times for goods on the Mississippi? So St. Louis South uh, on the Mississippi River, transit times generally, it will take give or take 25 or 30 days to get a barge back and forth from the Gulf to St. Louis and then back to the Gulf. Right now, you, you can pretty much count on doubling at least that transit time just with the various intermittent closures and the dredging operations. What can farmers do to minimize the risk to their operations here? We just need to instruct them to continue to follow the markets, ask a lot of questions to your grain reps and your fertilizer reps about the situation. Barge traffic in the United States is the most efficient form of transportation. And without this link in the chain, we're, we're forced to go to other modes and other delivery points until the situation is alleviated. So just be aware of it, be educated, and ask your CHS reps about uh, the ongoing situation and what's happening. That's Ben Doan, Barge Freight Manager with CHS. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at adspipe.com. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly three million times against the competition. How many? Three million frickin' times. Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, folks. Say, taking a look at the markets today, there is quiet trade in the world of agricultural commodities here on Election Day. So much news is coming ahead of us. Of course, midterms on Tuesday. Wednesday, we get the November World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates, those WASD reports that come out monthly from the USDA. And then on Thursday, we've got the November CPI data, that inflation information. We'll get that print early on Thursday morning. Lots of things for traders to keep their minds on, not to mention concerns about yield out there in the field. Joining us to break down all these factors is Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing up in South Dakota. And Dwayne, whew, busy week this week, huh? <laughs> yeah, it is. That's a lot of reports coming our way. You know, the USDA report tomorrow might not be a big mover in the markets. I see the average trade estimate is pretty much dead on on the yield for corn and soybeans versus last month. And I think that's probably correct. But but you never know. We always like to throw a few curveballs in there somewhere, too, to surprise the traders. So as of right now, Dwayne, looking ahead to tomorrow's supply and demand estimates, no major adjustments are expected on either corn or soybeans? No, they aren't looking for any major adjustments, not as far as the yield and the production-wise. The demand is definitely in question, though. Uh, our corn export demand has been lackluster, to say the least, and I'd expect maybe a 25 or 50 million bushel cut to that demand. I mean, we're 60 cents higher than the, the global competitors out there, so I would understand a cut there. But when it comes down to it though mike at the end our supplies here our domestic supplies in the u.s are still very tight even with a little bit of a decrease in demand we really can't afford to export any extra grain uh than what we already are forecasting so yeah it might be a little bit bearish for the corn market to start with but by the end of the day i think you're going to look at the ending stock number still down around that 1.2 or even under 1.2 billion bushels and realize that's a lot smaller than last year when we rallied to 750 for new crop corn. So supplies will still stay tight, and that's going to keep our market supported. With supplies staying tight, Dwayne, I'm curious, how do you think the ethanol industry performs as we go through this winter? Are you seeing them uh, still put some strong bids out there in the countryside? Absolutely. Actually, their crush margins are pretty darn good. So I look for them to be very competitive. Uh, very competitive basis-wise, and moving some bushels around. And that's kind of what we're seeing so far this winter is once harvest is wrapping up, we're trying to get bushels to where they need to be. You know, you had some prevent plant areas up my way where the acres just didn't get planted. Then you had drought areas in, like, southeast South Dakota where we got to pull some corn into and some of the feedlot areas in the southern plains we need more corn. So basis is going to do the job of moving the bushels around, and, and ethanol plants will, will keep bidding to compete for that feed usage. Indeed, they will. Dwayne, I know you like to keep track of what's happening on the cattle side. We've been talking beef demand a lot on this episode. We had a little bit of weakness today in the cattle complex. Take us through this week. What do you think develops here in live cattle? We had a good trade yesterday. The back months managed to make higher highs than Friday. You know, the, what I would call the late month of February contract now didn't have that new high. So maybe just a little bit of technical selling this morning. Uh, news is probably a little bit higher cash cattle trade this week. And that had that futures market up yesterday. And, and I would agree with that, Mike. I, I think this market looks strong. I think we're going to keep grinding higher uh, feeders. I still like being long January feeders. I think they have a good chance to get to 190. Uh, strong demand moving forward could be an awesome market in 2023 as, as long as the recession holds off. I don't know how bad the recession will be. I'm in the camp that it won't be that bad, so that makes me more bullish for the cattle market, I guess. Well, and I think that leads to my next question. Duane, I was looking ahead to Thursday, this inflation data report. Is that going to have much of a, a much of an impact on the cattle market, given how price-sensitive consumers can be? Yeah, it, it probably will, at least for an hour, maybe, or two. Yeah, the CPI number should come in fairly high again. I mean, inflation's obviously rampant out there. If, if you look at your your credit card bills, everyone will know that. Inflation's definitely here. <laughs> uh, so that number is probably going to come in high. It might hurt the cattle market a little bit, but but short-term, short-lived. I, I think when it comes down to it right now, the fundamentals, packers actually don't have a ton of cattle coming in, and they, they're going to have to pay up just a little bit for it. And nobody feels like the feedlot guys know that. And honestly, if you're feeding a, a steer and you're looking at 7 to $9 corn in some of these southern feedlots, you'll, you'll let it go pretty early, which means a little bit less production out there too. 
That certainly makes sense. Seven to nine dollar corn with that basis hit down there in southwestern Kansas in some places. That is a chunk of money. Dwayne, we're also seeing it, of course, impact pork production. We've seen the lean hog market come off at summer highs pretty substantially. Any chance it could take another run at them? I don't think so. Yesterday's market was really sharp up move here because you know some of the pork cutouts had kind of raced up the last couple of days, but I don't know. I don't know if I trust it, Mike. I think that's a short-term deal, and I think that we have a deal where actually the, this premium in the cash market is going to come down and meet the these futures eventually. So I think yesterday was kind of a one-day blip, and we're not seeing the follow-through buying today either. It kind of confirms to me that it's just a short-term deal. So I don't think we can get back up to the highs. Okay, that's, that makes sense given the seasonality of that market. Dwayne, before we let you go, another topic that's been on everybody's mind, of course, continues to be energy costs, diesel fuel most notably. Have you been keeping up with the energy complex? What do you think is going to happen here? I, it's a little little scary. It's very high priced, but I wouldn't recommend people going out and locking in these high prices or being worried that you're not going to have fuel come spring. It, it's a very political driven thing. It sounds like we've been exporting too much diesel fuel out of the country, which just means you know someone someone else, namely Europe, is willing to pay for that high prices. But you wouldn't shock me to see our our politicians actually ban exports for a short period of time to keep diesel fuel here and then a lower price in the future. Oh, boy, that would certainly shock the market, wouldn't it, Dwayne? It would. That's probably that morning you and I go along the board thinking we got this thing figured out. <laughs> and then politicians come in and do something like that. And, and I don't like them doing that. I like supply and demand to just work. But, uh, you know, it is election day. And I'm not saying it's going to happen today, but crazy things always happen to keep votes, right? They certainly do. And election season is when those crazy things do tend to happen, folks. We've been talking to Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing there in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, we always appreciate your insight here on these crazy markets. Anytime. Thanks, Mike. And folks, do be sure to tune in tomorrow. No doubt we'll have some information on the midterm election, and we'll take a look at ag policy as we prepare for the future. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll see you tomorrow for more AOM. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, thinking back to the weather this past year, did it set up any pest concerns? Absolutely. We had northern corn rootworm pressure, which was fairly high this season. Uh, beetles were present in cornfields and bean fields throughout South Dakota, even farther west than what we've seen in the previous years. And we saw a clipping of silks, which led to susceptibility of diseases entering the ear, such as corn smut. And when performing root digs, it showed larva feeding. So overall, this pest is robbing yields. So I recommend that for 2023, you protect your yields with smart stacks or smart stacks pro hybrids and consider an insecticide at planting. That's Don Gustafson with an update on channel products this year. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield.